The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So I'll start with this uh, poem translated by, I'm guessing, Coleman Barks, this of Rumi, this Sufi mystic from, I think, the 13th century. What I want to... What I want to do is leap out of this personality and then sit apart from that leaping. I live too long where I can be reached. And this is, uh, I think, does a pretty good job at pointing to the paradox, our paradox as a practitioner. You know, where we sense, appropriately, we sense the oppressive experience of being me, I don't know about you, but I sense that, right? And we, we want to learn skillful means to abandon, to leap out of, to experience some freedom from that oppressiveness of self or that oppressiveness of selfing. But we don't want to make that a thing too. You know, like, look what I've done. Or, oh my God, I don't want to lose this. Or any kind of trip around the abandoning of that fixation. And I think that's really useful generally as we do this work these weeks to um, think about personality view, wrong view, as it's said sometimes, selfing, to see it as a fixation of the mind. Because then the reason why that might be more useful, so that way we're not pathologizing the skillful use of self. Because that happens all the time. Where, you know, as we're navigating our social worlds, we inhabit self a lot in our dynamic or social dynamics, right? And so it's not about not doing that. It's, a, it's about not being confused. And uh, so one of the things that you might bring up in your small group, you know, as you more, have more highlighted times, moments today and the last week, tonight even while we're sitting here before your small group, like just noticing when they're selfing Practice not being confused by that, those habits of selfing. And just sense, like, is it necessary and useful to be selfing? When is it useful? When is it not useful? And that's much more the, the way the Buddha taught, this very pragmatic. And especially around view. Because it gets, it gets really stinky fast. You see this in Buddhist circles and definitely generally in spiritual and religious circles. The kind of one fixed view, challenging, feeling better than another fixed view. And the whole spiritual enterprise is about like getting the right fixed view. <laughs> And always, you know, whenever we have a fixed view, we always wonder if there's a better fixed view. But it's a tenuous position 
when the mind clinging to something it thinks is true, right? It's always tenuous because it, the mind, there's always going to be doubt whether we own that doubt or not. And so the, the more dharmic way is just understanding like what way of understanding makes sense, is helpful right now. It's a, it's a pragmatic question, a question of skill as opposed to a question of absolute truth. So um, I think I mentioned this last week, but you know when you're contemplating anatta, the not self, the impersonal nature, always like one of the first things you want to say is something like, "I have no clue." But whatever people mean by that word, they're pointing to this moment. Not a different moment, like when I'm my, I've got my Dharma act together or I have my meditation together, then that will be anatta, that will be impersonal nature. But right now I'm in this realm of self, practicing in order to get to the realm of not-self. Right? That would be an uh, unhelpful way to think about what we're doing. So the more helpful way is to Whatever anybody means by this te- these teachings on not self, they're pointing to something right here in my experience. It's already here. It's always been here. So then we get curious, right? So you see, that's a skillful way because it initiates that curiosity, that mindfulness. We can only only be mindful of here and now. And and the and then related to that is that uh, mindfulness itself has this flavor of anatta. So then you know the sort of next step, like whatever anatta is about, it's here and now, right? Already here and now. So I don't have to like need a different experience. I might be in a moment where I'm freaking out about what happened to me. And a lot of what we would call selfing going on. But this is as much, this moment of freaking out is as much anatta as me earlier in the day having a good sit, where there's just a lot of space in the mind, a lot of peace, a lot of absence of neurotic activity. It's not like, oh, that was anatta and this isn't anatta. That's impersonal, but this is personal. So the the teachings on anatta, it's like uh, dharma or dhamma, the way it is, we're waking up. We're using Buddha, the capacity to be awake, to be aware in this balanced way. We're using that capacity to be intimate with dhamma or dharma, the way it is. And dharma is characterized by you know, the specific characteristics of that moment, oh, this thought is arising or this sensation is being felt, hardness, heaviness, this sound is being heard. That's sort of what the level beneath my mental interpretation of what's happening, 
So we call it like the specific characteristics of what's being known in the moment. So like a moment of knowing could be knowing the mind interpreting what's happening, but not being aware that it is an interpretation. That would be superficial knowing. And then more in the direction of a moment of mindfulness would be realizing the specific characteristics. So the motorcycle drives by and we hear the sounds, but we're not caught with the interpretation, oh, that's a big motorcycle. We're really aware of the reverberation of the lower tone or whatever. You know, we're really in the hearing because that's what's being known. doesn't mean that your interpretation isn't being known, but the interpretation, the way the mind relates to interpretations is it fixes on that so it isn't, doesn't have to stay connected with the fuller truth, which is like the interpretation that's a motorcycle can actually be used to connect. Oh, and it sounds like this. This is the sound. And then I don't need the concept of motorcycle because I'm in the hearing of it. Could be with seeing, could be with any of the sense gates, but I'm just talking about an experience of hearing now. Right, so we go from the interpretation to the specific characteristics. But the more we're with any moment of experience, it's actually not just the interpretation that turns out to be not that relevant in terms of spiritual awakening or transformation, and not even the specific characteristics are that important. The hardness of sensation or the heaviness or the warmth or coolness of a sensation, the tone of a sound, the shape or color of a sight. Those are the specific characteristics. What turns out to be more relevant in terms of the transformation of our understanding is that any experience that's being known, when it's seen more in the depth of it, is changing. It's a flow, whether it's sound or sight or thought or touch. It's a flow. And as a flow, as a movement, it can't, the ego can't grasp it and own it in a way. So in Dharma, in Buddhism, we call that it's unsatisfying, unsatisfactory. Because it's a flow, it never, any experience, it never becomes a thing that somebody can own. And so the part of, you know, the sort of idea of self, the concept of self, is hungry for ground, hungry to own experience, to have something that confirms the, its interpretation of being something, someone, who has experience, right? So it's like it needs nouns, it needs solidity, but it doesn't find it. So we call that dukkha. So the underlying nature of experience is it's ephemeral, it's insubstantial, it's not satisfying, it's dukkha, and it's impersonal. So people who've been in Buddhist studies know that in the summer we studied the first of the three underlying characteristics of impermanence. And then the fall we studied dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature, and now in the winter we're studying anatta, the impersonal nature. 
they're not they're not really pointing to different things. They're just pointing to the way it is. So this moment exists as my interpretation of it, and then if I'm not confused my by my mind's interpretation, like I'm at Kamagam giving another talk, here I am again. And then if I go beyond that, then I'm in this world of specific characteristics. There's seeing being known and hearing being known and touches being felt and thoughts being seen, right? And if I really practice not being confused or reacting to the specific characteristics or my interpretation, then another world opens up. And we call this the world of Dharma or the world of the way that it actually is. And this is the world of the three characteristics. The effect, it's what arises is Dhamma or Dharma, which is characterized by being insubstantial because it's in motion. So it never becomes something. It's always, even before something is fully bloomed, it's already passing So the next moment and the next moment. And that is deeply unsatisfying, unsatisfactory for the sense of an ego, the sense of a me or my hungry for permanent ground. It's only a problem for what's not ultimately real. There's no problem to impermanence except the idea of somebody wanting permanence or stability or ground, right? So we see the change, we see the unsatisfactoriness, and we see it's a natural process, an interdependent, changing, unsatisfying for self movement of everything. And that's what we're waking up to. And so the anatta is just another facet of dukkha, another facet of change, of impermanence or anicca, anicca, dukkha, anatta. So if somebody asks you, you know, why do you sit or why are you so interested in mindful awareness, wisdom and awareness, say, well, I want to wake up. I want to see the mind's constant habit of interpreting its experience to itself. Can't turn it off. I want to wake up to the diversity of the specific characteristics of the moment. It's wild how much is being sensed and felt and seen and touched and thought. And it never ceases, that flow, movement of specific characteristics. And dropping in to the underlying nature of that flow is it's ephemeral, it's insubstantial. The movement never ceases. It's empty of solidity, empty of satisfaction, and empty of self. That's what nature is. It's always been that way. It's that way right now. It will always be that way. And so we're, the Buddha is saying there's something profoundly liberating by having an honest relationship. And the, the only problem is we're in the habit of living in a superficial way. And then we get dependent on living in that superficial or distracted way. And so the practice, all the work in practice, is to learn how to live in a different way, like in an intimate way, a sensitive way, 
a more honest way, where we're orienting around that balanced awareness more than orienting around our interpretations of what's happening. And then we just observe, confirm for ourselves, does life work better then? And then again, you know, it's easy for us to think, well, if it's really empty of self, why would anybody do that? And I love this response. I think it was one of Ajahn Tanisaro's teachers, and he's a Western monk. If you go to the webpage, you know, there's probably 20 to 30 articles on our webpage for this particular course. And many of those, several of those articles are by Ajahn. Sometimes people call him Ajahn Jaff because in that particular lineage of Thai Buddhism, the Thai forest tradition, the monks and nuns use their first name um, and not their monastic name. But his monastic name is Ajahn Tanisaro. And uh, yeah, so you can read that. But he, one of his teachers said, you know, when, you, when your mind opens to a deeper freedom, it doesn't really matter that it's not personal. When the heart touches something really beautiful, a kind of love that's really deeply healing, a kind of space of freedom that's really you know, transforming, the mind doesn't care because what matters, it doesn't care like that it isn't personal because the release is what's relevant. And so this is the thing where, we're, you know, we always say, I don't know if you remember, because it seems so counterproductive or counterintuitive uh, with the teachings on not-self, but um, one of the famous, one of the most famous passages, a lot of you know this, when uh, the Buddha and his attendant Ananda heard from uh, a visiting monk that the Buddha's two chief disciples had died because they were older than the Buddha, Moggallana and Sariputta. And uh, Ananda was really distraught and having a hard time because Sariputta in particular was such an important teacher of his. And um, let's see, I'm going to find it here. So the first thing the Buddha says to Ananda, his attendant, you know, haven't I always told you that everything comes and goes? And just because these two wise folks have died, as important as they were for the community, the community of practitioners still stands. There's still this dynamic of people practicing wisely, getting the results that happen when people practice wisely. Yeah, two great teachers are no longer with us. So you don't need to worry. You just need to do your practice. And then the Buddha ends this little sort of pep talk to Ananda. Therefore, Ananda, each of you should make oneself their island, make themselves and no other their refuge. Each of you should make Dhamma your island, their island, and Dhamma and no other their refuge. And the Buddha's not saying that 
this interpretation, this sense of selfing, that that's our refuge, but that whatever is going to save us, whatever is going to transform our life, it's getting close to what's already here. We don't need a different life or different body and mind, a different experience. We just need to get closer and closer and closer to what's here. Because it's all about coming into alignment. The problem is being misaligned and the resolution is alignment. And actually, evidently, the word dukkha means that axle wheel that's out of true, misaligned. And so it doesn't work very well as a cart. So when our mind is misaligned, when our not our mind so much, but our understanding is misaligned because of the habit of selfing. And the thing about selfing, the samsara, like what is that feedback loop? Selfing leads to more selfing. Because when I'm personalizing my experience, what do you think about me right now? What do you think about what I'm saying? You know, why does it seem like there are less people here tonight than last week? Or whatever kind of selfing, like, wow, so many people came back. Very few people look like they're asleep. (laughs) You know, so whatever kind of selfing is going on, then we can be interested, like, what comes with selfing? What comes with it? Oh, clinging comes with it. And when my mind is clinging, liking the interpretation that you like to talk or not liking the mind's interpretation that you don't like to talk, doesn't matter, positive or negative, pleasant or unpleasant. But to the degree the mind is trying to feed on some interpretation, clinging to some interpretation, there's stress. And wrong understanding. So what does wrong understanding do with the experience of stress? Something like, I know I'm here because I'm hurting. Right. So every moment of suffering, of stress, wrongly, but this is that feedback loop, confirms that I'm here because I'm suffering. I know I'm here. Did you notice this in the guided sit? How many moments in the guided sit where we were trying to open the hearing, you know, but it felt like there was some tension there, and the habit is to want to interpret that as me. God, if only I weren't here, I could get really close to hearing. Or if only I weren't here, I could get really close to the bodily sensations or to catching thoughts coming and going. Right? So there is that sort of tension and the misinterpretation of it. Because what actually is that, let's call it background tension? It's sensation being known, thought being known, maybe a mental image being seen, but it's just something being known. And it's misinterpreted. And being misinterpreted confirms the habit of selfing, of seeing or interpreting the moment in terms of referring back to me, being mine, being about me. And on and on and on it goes. So to break that cycle, 
we are totally dependent. This is the sort of key that unlocks the feedback loop that breaks the cycles of suffering, samsara, is the balanced continuity of present moment awareness. And so this is what this is the point I want to make about a moment of mindfulness is a moment of this insight into anatta. It's not more mysterious than a simple moment of wise awareness, wisdom awareness. Because when there's wisdom awareness, let's just use the example of hearing, because we worked with that during the guided sit. But it could be any experience, of course. You know, when there's just hearing being known, when it's just as simple as it actually is, when the mind has been trained to be interested in the simple truth of the present moment, which is this is being known, so trained, so fully, and for a moment or two in the practice, it's not doing anything extra, which is adding a sense of this hearing referring back to me, I'm hearing. And so you'll catch that in moments where the interest in hearing is pretty full, you'll, the mind will in, uh, intuit the absence. You won't see anatta, you'll see what's not there. Right? Anatta just means, atta means self. Right? So anatta is just the negation of self. You'll see that the moment is empty of self or empty of selfing. And it will have a particular flavor, like the taste of freedom. Because the sense of self is an interpretation projected on, and it always comes with weight. Because if this experience is me or mine, then it matters. <laughs> right? And when it's anatta, it's nature. It isn't a burden for anybody. So there's a very particular weight to moments of anatta. But it isn't something, it's the absence of something. It's the absence of something that's extra, which is that overlay of selfing, of that, you know, it's, <laughs> it's as deep of a, a habit that our mind has as any habit. So just keep that in mind, like, that that moment of mindfulness, what we call mindfulness, and you know nothing, not like don't think about it in terms of some deep state of samadhi or concentration, but just an ordinary moment where the heart is sincere, sincere about connecting, seeing clearly, being open, and uh, you know the the key is to really trust the simple of mindful awareness. That's why it's nice to work with simple, neut- relatively neutral experience like hearing in a room like we were in tonight where there weren't a lot of dangerous sounding sounds. And so we can really just relax. As I mentioned in the guide, it's a notice, I mean, it's sort of su- surprising how effortless it is to hear that's sort of evidence, right? Like, doesn't have to, doesn't require.
require a sense of somebody doing the hearing, the meditator, me, doing the hearing. Well, that's nice. And of course, because of the force of habit, there's always a little reverberation like, oh, I'm doing it. You know, like there's always, but don't be confused by the selfing. Just either ignore it, which is fine, or if it's really loud, you know, big in terms of experience, then just recognize, well, that's just the, the next thing being known. And the next and the next. So in the small groups tonight, um, just a few thoughts. I mean, one thing is just anything that seems related, um, like that flavor in ordinary moments of mindfulness for you that had that flavor of anatta, this moment empty of self, empty of selfing. So just be aware of that. And on the other side of that, like sharing, one possibility would be sharing moments of feeling very clearly the weight of selfing. And just when when you describe that to your small group, you know, moments where <laughs> the edifice of self was so seemingly so apparent, so real, then then review with your group, you know, what was the evidence for you to make that conclusion? Like in hindsight now, I mean maybe it is the moment you were talking, you can even use that moment in real time, of course. But maybe something happened that was embarrassing earlier in the day and there was that real sense of self, right, that felt so obvious. So then break it down like in real time in front of the group, deconstruct, okay, what did the mind see or experience in those moments? And what was that dynamic of interpreting it as me or mine? What was that like? And could it have been interpreted or connected with in another way? Okay, so that's just something you can bring up in the small group. And then just uh, another way is to do uh, like to take some moments from today or during a sit or any moment and just go through those three, just for lack of a better way of talking about, three levels of reality. The mind's interpretation, the specific characteristics that the sensitive mind or the sensitive heart was aware of, the underlying characteristics or the universal characteristics of change, unsatisfactory nature, impersonal nature. So just like, and again, you can do it real time. You know, when you're sitting in front of the group, what's your mind's interpretation? What are the specific uh, specific experiences, characteristics that are being known through the eyes, through the ears, through touch, through thought? And then is the mind, is the wisdom, you should say, I guess, is the wisdom able to discern the changing nature, the unsatisfactory nature, and the impersonal nature of what's moving right now, and to what degree? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, 
www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.